what sorts of things drive you? You both are working so hard. You're activists. You're, you never stop reading and writing. You're passionately engaged in the world. And I wonder what's driving you both. What's, what's motivating you? What's important to you? To make you... What's important? Uh, what's important? Looking in the mirror in the morning and not being appalled at what I see. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> For me, it's looking out the window and not being appalled at what I see. <laughs> So in other words, you're really concerned about feel, feeling that in your life you've done all you can do to um, I know situation. I haven't done anywhere near what I could do, which mm-hmm. is why I often am appalled when I look in the mirror. But uh, mm-hmm. looking out the window and seeing what's there... And you feel the responsibility thinking, as an intellectual... Not as an intellectual, just a human being. As a human being. So, I, mean, it's a, I think it's a kind of funny question. The f- question that ought to be, like a lot of questions, it's the wrong one. Yeah. The question that ought to be asked is, why doesn't everybody engage themselves, recognize that they're not engaging themselves enough, mm-hmm. because none of us are, even saints, uh, in trying to uh, help deal with the problems of suffering people? Also, what is there in our society that makes empathy in such short supply? Mm-hmm. I'm more shocked by that than other people in every society, the inability to picture what it is like to be somebody else. Now, my profession as a novelist, I have to do that. I become other people. Mm-hmm. But I've always had that tendency, and I'm always startled when I start to talk to people, start going on about how much they hate the blacks or the Jews or the gay people, and you suddenly see there is no ability to identify with anyone else except themselves. Mm-hmm. And I suppose if I had a motivating thing, it probably would come out of an overwrought empathy mm-hmm. and irritability at its absence in others. Welcome to In Conversation. I'm Jay Perini. The idea for this program is simple, to bring together people of real distinction in a context where conversation can occur. The notion for such a program came to me several years ago when I was invited for dinner by my friend and Vermont neighbor, Robert Penn Warren. Warren's other guest that evening was Saul Bellow, the novelist, who had just won his Nobel Prize for Literature. And I remember sitting on the Warren's screened-in porch in the shadow of Mount Stratton and thinking that I was really privileged to be there that night, listening in on some of the best conversation that I can imagine ever taking place. Today in Cambridge, we're bringing together two of America's leading intellectuals, Gore Vidal and Noam Chomsky, in conversation. I feel this is a bit the first supper. Gore Vidal and Noam Chomsky are both in their ways purists. Some would even call them extremists. Vidal, of course, is a major writer, the author of 25 novels, including such famous bestsellers as Lincoln, Burr, and Myra Breckinridge. He ran for Congress in Upper New York State for the Democrats in 1960 and very nearly won. In 1982, he ran for the Senate in California. He's also written nearly 40 movies, including Ben-Hur and Suddenly Last Summer. Vidal is also well-known because of his many appearances over the years on such popular TV talk shows as Larry King and Johnny Carson. Perhaps his most memorable TV appearances were in 1968, when he debated William F. Buckley in a series of encounters staged by ABC during the presidential campaigns of that infamous year. The last debate in Chicago ended up in near fisticuffs. Noam Chomsky is a man of many lives. His groundbreaking work in the field of theoretical linguistics, which is the study of language, has been compared to that of Freud in psychology and Marx in economics. 
He is, by any reckoning, an intellectual of world-class stature, a philosopher of language, a scientist of the mind. He has received innumerable prizes for his work in linguistics, including, most recently, the prestigious Kyoto Prize for Science. Chomsky has also been a leading political activist, an American dissident. Chomsky is also a man on the move. A professor at MIT, he often lectures three times a week in places other than Cambridge, Massachusetts, usually about politics. Almost incredibly, he has written over two dozen books on the subject of American foreign policy, and his books, each of them a landmark in its way, range in subject from the Vietnam War to Central America to the Middle East. He has also written brilliantly about the role of intellectuals in American life. Now, in conversation, Gore Vidal and Noam Chomsky. I'll give you a little picture. I like to do little pictures. Two years ago, Rights of Man in Paris, 200th anniversary, and I'm there to talk about it on television. And all the chiefs of state from all the world are there, and the whole center of Paris is cordoned off day after, I'm trying to get out of the hotel. Suddenly down the empty streets comes this black limousine with two American flags and the presidential seal is George Bush and Barbara and the Secret Service. And they go slowly down the street and I have to walk a couple blocks still trying to find a way to get out of there. They comes back up the street. They're lost. <laughs> time. And no one had paid any attention to the Emperor of the West in Paris at this meeting. And I said to myself, this is an odd thing to see the Emperor of the West drifting around the streets of Paris. He's going to have to think of something to do. And he did. He decided to invade a little country? A war, as war is the usual diversion. His son was possibly, allegedly going to prison for his SNL efforts. Mm-hmm. The cost of bailing out the SNLs, according to that radical paper, the Wall Street Journal, it will be slightly more than the entire cost of World War II to the United States in today's dollars. So there's a lot to divert attention from. That, to me, was the point of the war. There are obviously subtext, but that's the central one in my mind. I agree with you on the diversion. I mean, there are many audiences that had to be addressed by this operation. One of them is the American population, who have mm-hmm. to be diverted not just from the SNLs, but from the whole growing social and economic catastrophe around them, which has been very much accelerated in the Reagan-Bush years. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, after all, this is not the first time. There have been periodic episodes of exactly this sort right through the 1980s. Uh, there's been repeated huge propaganda efforts establishing some uh, awesome chimera about to destroy us and then we're miraculously rescued at the last minute, uh, you know, international terrorists, mm-hmm. you bomb Libya and we're saved, uh, narco-traffickers and you smash up Panama and we're saved, even Grenada, you know, 100,000 people, mm-hmm. uh, was set up as a major threat to our existence with an airfield, you know, going to interdict uh, sea traffic and the Caribbean and so on, and then we're saved and so on. And that's, that's standard. I mean, you have to divert, you want to make sure that the population doesn't think about what's around them and maybe do something about it. Uh, obviously, that's one audience, but the so international the scene is, well, that's one part mm-hmm. of it, but there's more. I think the imperial element is also significant. The, the third world has to be taught a lesson. Uh, they have to be taught a lesson that if you step on our toes, you don't just get beaten, you get pulverized. Uh, and in fact, the administration was kind enough to uh, 
give us that story in their own words. They leaked, on, just as the ground, so-called ground war, it's not a war, the ground operation was beginning, they leaked a section of a national uh, security review, policy security review from, security policy review from the early days of the Bush administration, so long before this, and it was a section on third world threats. Mm -hmm. uh, and what it said was something like this. It said, in the case of a much weaker enemy, uh, it is not enough to defeat them. You have to defeat them decisively and rapidly because anything else would be too embarrassing and might undercut political support. So the trick is you find a much weaker enemy, build them up to be a, a major monstrous force, menacing force, Saddam Hussein, then sorry. defeat them, or, mm -hmm. you know, Noriega, which was done just a year ago with Noriega, mm -hmm. defeat them decisively and rapidly, uh, mm -hmm. and that's the only way you can keep political support. Uh, 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 and that's a lesson to the third world, but it's also a lesson to the world as a whole. I mean, the United States no longer is the, the overwhelmingly dominant economic force in the world as it was for many years. Mm -hmm. It's now just one of three. But in military force, it ranks supreme, and it has every reason to want confrontations in the world shifted to the military arena because the domain of force is where the United States is dominant, and you play your strong card in any confrontation. U.S. card happens to be force. Uh, furthermore, it's... Uh, it, it's more intricate because the U.S. no longer has the economic base to carry out the traditional role of third world intervention. Mm -hmm. It therefore has to become, as the business press has been very frank in pointing out, has to become a mercenary state. Uh, others are going to have to pay for these adventures. And one source of payment is petrodollars. One of the major sources of capital in the world is uh, the profits from uh, energy production. And the United States wants to make sure, as it has long wanted to make sure, that those profits uh, are fed primarily to support the U.S. economy and, of course, mm -hmm. the economy of its lieutenant in these operations, namely Britain. What, uh, about, the way back. what about the standard argument here, though, Noam, that, Noam, that um, Saddam Hussein really is a bad guy, yeah, sure that he did do a terrible thing in invading his neighboring country, Kuwait, that he did subject the Kuwaiti people to terrible tortures, um, and that probably, and they also was probably building up a nuclear arsenal. But these were all, so in many ways, there was a justification for this war. Well, look, all of those things are true, and they were all true on August 1st. Mm -hmm. uh, on August 1st, when uh, uh, the United, uh, when, uh, it was true in 1980. Mm -hmm. In 1980, Saddam Hussein was basically a Russian client. Uh, Reagan and Bush and Thatcher recognized him as our kind of guy, you know, mm -hmm. and they worked very hard for several years to switch him over to the U.S. side. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, in 1982, he was taken off the list of terrorist states so that they could then get huge U.S. credits to uh, buy U.S. exports. Became one of the leading trade. Tra uh, U.S. became one of his leading trading partners. Uh, by 1987. Uh, Iraq was lar largely a Western, dependent on the West, also for the buildup of its uh, extensive weapons of mass destruction and mm -hmm. so on. Uh, when he did things like, say, gassing the Kurds in 1988, the Reagan administration intervened to prevent Congress from uh, uh, condemning it in any serious way, let alone mm -hmm. to stop sanctions. This went right on to 1990. I mean, in July 1990, Bush intervened again to try to prevent the House Foreign Affairs Committee from condemning Saddam Hussein, or it did impose some sanctions that would interfere with American business. Mm -hmm. In fact, on August 1st, you know, while they were getting not only warnings, but direct 
statements from the CIA saying the invasion is coming. Uh, on August 1st, the White House authorized new high-technology shipments to Iraq. In the preceding two weeks, up to August 1st, mm -hmm. they had authorized, according to what's made, been made public so far, who knows the real story, but what's been made public so far, they authorized almost $5 million worth of high-technology aid. To go to Iraq. It went not just to Iraq. It went to the Ministry of mm -hmm. Military Industry. It went to the nuclear research plant that was later bombed on the grounds that it was producing military bombs mm -hmm. uh, it, and, and to a chemical and to, a, to another plant that was bombed on the grounds that it was producing chemical and biological weapons. Now that was mm -hmm. two weeks before. And mm -hmm. it's true that the invasion of Kuwait was a crime, but you know his yes. record was so sordid that uh, mm -hmm. what it added to it is very slight and was of no concern to the United States. But I mean, so this makes no sense. What's the turning point? Why? The turning point is we stepped on our toes. Well, and that you don't do. I mean, by the standards of the United States and Britain, mm -hmm. you can gas your population, you can torture, you can murder, you can set up one of the most brutal tyrannies in the world. That's all fine as long as you're our thug. Yes. But uh, he did something on August 2nd, which is impermissible. He was told, we don't care very much if you rectify border problems, but he took over Kuwait. Mm -hmm. And that's not allowed. We run the oil business, and when anybody steps on our toes, mm -hmm. especially if they're much weaker, uh, then they get not only defeated, but pulverized. That's the lesson that has to be learned. Don't and step lesson, on our toes. You speak of the lesson to the second and third world countries. Mm -hmm. Even more important, apropos of my vision of an aimless president drifting lost in Paris, ignored by other leaders, this was a message, a lesson to the first world. That not only were the Soviet Union off the world stage as an empire, what we are doing, we, are, we have no national at all uh, reason in the Middle East. We have no national interest. We get 15% of our oil comes from there, and we could just as easily get it from somewhere else. But, of course, Western Europe and Japan get most of their oil from there. I think that I, 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 I don't believe that American administrations are very good at planning or indeed thinking, and they don't, they're generally rather ignorant, but... I suspect that this is not only a message to Western Europe, mm -hmm. but to Japan, that we are going to be a permanent military presence in the Middle East, and that's where the oil supply is. Mm -hmm. And I can see further down the road, we would absolutely collapse economically if every quarter the Japanese didn't come in and buy American Treasury bonds. I could just see the Bank of Japan dragging its feet, or the Bundesbank, and the United States uh, clearing its throat and starting to talk about oil prices. Mm -hmm. And suddenly they will start buying our treasury bonds. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's blackmail. Well, I, I think that's, I'd like, I don't entirely agree with that. I think there's another factor. Mm -hmm. uh, it's true that we don't use oil from the Middle East, very little oil from the Middle East. And you, as you say, we could get by with none. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the profits from Middle East oil are a major factor. Well, the oil companies, yes. Not just the oil American. companies, not just the oil companies, the profits made by the client states. Mm. The, equate, I mean, the way the, the, when Britain and the United States set up the imperial settlement for the region, uh, the oil is, the, tr the idea is, goes back to Lord Curzon, that you set up what, what Lord Curzon called an Arab facade, uh, and that then Britain, but later the United States, would rule, uh, would disguise absorption behind the veil of constitutional uh -huh. fictions like buffer state and so uh -huh. on. So you have this Arab facade, which is 
basically family dictatorships. They manage the oil system for us, but they, uh, but we make sure that we do have the lever some, there's some leverage over pricing and production. We want that to be in our hands for exactly the reasons you mentioned. We also want to make sure that the flow of investments, uh, of capital, of profits, is largely back to the British and American economies. Actually, we have documentary evidence on this. The documentary record's been cleared partially, at least, through about, sure. through about 1960. And it's very interesting to look at the um, declassified British and American records after the Iraqi Revolution in 1958. That was the first break in the Anglo-American condominium. Sure. So naturally, they were hysterical about it. And sure. Selwyn Lloyd flew over to Washington and talked to Dulles and so on and so forth. And they decided at that time to uh, grant some kind of nominal independence to Kuwait to try to dampen the threat of another nationalist revolution there. Uh, and uh, though they reserved the right, as Selwyn Lloyd put it, ruthlessly to intervene if anything goes wrong with this settlement. And the reasoning was that uh, at that time, particularly Britain, they were very concerned about that Kuwaiti investments had to, both Kuwaiti oil and Kuwaiti investments had to prop up this tottering British economy, and in fact, prop up Sterling <coughs> together. Now, by the, we don't, by the 1970s, the U.S. is in the same position. Uh, and it's not just the Japanese who buy treasury bonds. The Saudi Arabians buy them. Do you realize what the average American listener to this program will think, hearing you people talk about the war in the Gulf? You're essentially saying that, this, that, that what was seen on television was a mirage, that essentially um, the main arguments for the Gulf War were, were faked. That really what we're looking at are underlying economic profit-oriented reasons for pursuing this war in the Gulf. Profit and power. Profit and power. And uh, I would stress again what Gore said, diversion yeah. of the American public. Mm -hmm. I mean, the American public the must look away from their own problems, exactly. But, but this isn't the picture that most Americans have. Why should it be? What's, I mean, what's, the, what's the media are doing their job, after all, and the intellectuals are doing their job, which is to prevent people from understanding what's happening. I mean, I've just been speaking at Harvard, a, 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 a pleasant and gentle mm. place, but it, 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 Harvard exists, as does CBS, ABC, New York Times, to give the viewpoint of the establishment that owns and runs the country. And they have a worldview which does not coincide at any point with any reality that anybody mildly curious can uh, mm -hmm. discover. I would say that probably what the people think on almost any subject is, is, has been doctored for them. Sanctions were working against mm -hmm. Saddam. Uh, the problem was that 90% of the people when asked do they think sanctions were working didn't know what the word meant. A few Roman Catholics thought that a sanction was a step towards sainthood somewhere after Beatitude and before. The rest of them had no idea at all. What about the debate in the U.S. Senate about should we authorize the war or not? One saw a real medley of voices, points of view there, didn't we? Well, you no. certainly saw a lot of, some quite good speechwriters had been mm -hmm. called in, I must say. There was mm -hmm. eloquence and many people who could not parse a sentence were giving rather nice speeches. No, what you saw was the, uh, was the total collapse of our constitutional system of government in which only uh, Congress may declare a war. Bush at one point said what I've been saying for years, why well, he said we've, we've done armed intervention 220 times and uh, only five times have we ever declared war. Why I've been we saying this and they've been denying it. Now, why shouldn't we be said, praising George Bush now because he actually decided to follow um, 
a legal route to pursuing this war. That's not the and case. he also brought um, into the coalition uh, so many other nations. He didn't uh, act no, unilaterally. No, neither neither of those statements is accurate. No, it was. I mean, the coalition was the United States and England. Uh, in fact, up until January. What about 15th, France? Up until January fifteenth, it was a U.S.-British command in the Gulf. Mm -hmm. uh, after it became clear the war was going to go on, mm -hmm. uh, France. Italy and a couple of other countries decided they'd like to get their fingers in the uh, post-war settlements it's and true. the three days and so before so we started. On, you know, three days but it was a U.S.-British command and it was a U.S.-British war, very isolated mm -hmm. in the world. True, the, the famous 28 countries that were in mm -hmm. the coalition, uh, most of them were there to enforce the sanctions. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, and as far as the legalities are concerned, the U.S. just once again did what it's been doing for many years, namely undermine the United Nations. The United Nations has procedures, and mm. they were blocked. Uh, but didn't we get a UN resolution? No. Well, we, we notice what the resolution said. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We got a resolution in which the UN said, in effect, we wash our hands of the matter. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, the Why would they do that? Why would so many countries just fall back and take a back seat? They, they're States, not countries. It's a very frightening place. You don't fool around with it. Mm -hmm. uh, it uh, th this is what's been happening in the UN for years. Let's just take the period during which. George Bush has been in national prominence. He was mm -hmm. appointed UN ambassador in February 71, so say take that period. Mm -hmm. During that time, the uh, United States has vetoed, about two-thirds of the Security Council resolutions that have been vetoed have been vetoed by the United States. Mm -hmm. About half of the rest have been vetoed by England, mm -hmm. United Kingdom. That's between, between them, that's about 80%. Mm -hmm. Way down in third place is France, and fourth is the Soviet Union. Uh, the United Nations assumes in the General Assembly. I mean, you get votes in the General Assembly like, you know, 150 to 1 or 140 We've also to placed ourselves so outside the law. Yeah. We made it very clear over Nicaragua when we were called before the International Court at The Hague, which we'd helped set up at the beginning of the century, uh, over mining the Nicaraguan harbors, and we said, uh, we don't recognize the court at The Hague. No, we're rejecting and then, right now we're rejecting reparations. I mean, no, this, this is, is the one country that's rejecting reparations, mm -hmm. meanwhile calling on Iraq to pay reparations. But mm -hmm. in this current case, if you look closely at what happened at the UN, yeah. I think it was another case uh, in which the United States and its English lieutenant succeeded in subverting the United Nations. I mean, the UN response was mm -hmm. pursue sanctions and diplomacy. Mm -hmm. as usual effort after any act of aggression. It usually is blocked right away by the United States, which mm -hmm. vetoes it or undermines it. But look what happened. Mm -hmm. uh, the United States intervened directly to block diplomacy. Mm -hmm. I, I think sanctions already probably already had worked. I mean, there but were, you know, we didn't have to go for, in the past, uh, the American presidents wouldn't have gone for UN support in yeah, any case. Yeah, but look, this, well, was, a, this was a Isn't this a turning point no, for the American empire? No, it's a big operation. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is not like invading Panama, where we don't ask mm -hmm. anybody what they think. We just invade Panama. Mm -hmm. This is half a million troops uh, in the mm -hmm. most sensitive area of the world, which everybody's concerned about. You mm -hmm. have to get at least the pretense of a cover of support. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, after a lot of arm twisting uh, and pressures and threats, they succeeded in getting the Security Council to abdicate. That's mm -hmm. in effect what happened. It's the old frog in the pan thing. If you put a frog in a, in a mm -hmm. pan with water, cold water, and it'll sit there. Mm -hmm. You can heat it up until it becomes boiling, and the frog will feel nothing. <laughs> As it is happening so gradually, the frog adapts to each mm -hmm. change of the water. At the end of it, there's a dead frog. Mm -hmm. But he has not uh, had any anxiety about it. Well, so we're I sometimes think our people are the frog in the pan. 
that things are going very badly mm -hmm. uh, for the economy, for the average person, mm -hmm. and no one's doing anything about it. And we have the politics of diversion, which are foreign adventures, mm -hmm. and we have a irresponsible, to put it mildly, press. Has the empire really run out of gas? I mean, are we at the end of empire now, or are we just in a middle phase? Do we have another 50 years of diversionary tactics abroad? Well, the empire ended in 1950 when we were defeated in Korea. That was really the end, and the Russians got the atomic weapons. Mm -hmm. There was then parity. Once there's parity, you're not the world empire. You may be a world empire. Do you agree with that? Well, I mean, I, I think it's impossible to answer it one way or another. There's fluctuations in the world system. I mean, it was true that the peak of U.S. power was in the late 1940s. Mm -hmm. I mean, then it was just, I mean, there had been nothing like it in human history, the extent of the U.S. What did we control? Power. About 80% of the world's wealth? 50%. 50% of the world's wealth. It was about wealth. 50% of the world's wealth, but also we and had... all the military. And power. all the military force. And so we had uh, all the guns. And, you know, total security and the capacity to... Or, to I mean, the intention was to organize and, and structure the entire world. And the English what the Marshall Plan you know, was about. And, you know, mm -hmm. the, there was a whole global planning system that went back to the... You know, that, that, was the that was an unusual peak of power. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was obvious that that couldn't remain. Uh, for, for one thing, other industrial areas would recover. Mm -hmm. Uh, ultimately, mm -hmm. and power would become diffused, and mm -hmm. as you say, the Russians got you know, atomic weapons. Mm -hmm. Well, now the world system's changed again. I mean, from the 19... It's not just now. I mean, since mm -hmm. the 19... Since 1970, it's been clear that the world system is changing significantly. Mm -hmm. uh, power in the U.S. domains, power has very much diffused. Mm -hmm. The so-called trilateralism of the 70s was a reflection of the fact that there were three major economic centers, mm -hmm. and their relations are shifting. Uh, the U.S. is relatively declining. relatively declining. It's still the most powerful, but it's declining, and the Bush-Reagan years have we're accelerated still, that decline. Well, we're very rich, but we've borrowed too much money. We, no. do, are you saying that we can't really sustain the, the, the guns of empire? Well, we can't it's, really it's, under, such it's understood that we can't, which is why you will read in everything from the Financial Times to the Chicago Tribune mm -hmm. uh, that we have to become a mercenary state. Others are going to have to, in fact, they say, it, like, when well, the Gulf War was a mercenary war. Well, I mean, it's not only that, but they're hoping to make a big profit on it, mm -hmm. if you can believe the numbers they're giving. Extortion racket, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in fact, the, the, the editor, the financial editor of the Chicago Tribune put it rather nicely. Mm -hmm. What he said is, we have to sell protection to the world. Yep. Mm -hmm. We have to run a protection racket. You know, we're going to be the global mafia. I mean, if some country wants a third world... You know, if somebody's bothering you, say some third world country is pushing you or trying to get something from you, you call on us, we'll break their bones for mm -hmm. them, and you'll pay it. That's the mm -hmm. image. Now, you know, how long can a system like that be yeah. sustained? Well, you know, that's unpredictable. I'd like to ask you each what you really find most, the most difficult about this country. If you had to isolate something that was the most painful thing about it living here for you, being in America, what would it be? Well, I'm most disturbed by the collapse of the educational system. Mm -hmm. That whenever you start to describe anything, it's what I call inventing the wheel. Mm -hmm. You can't count on anybody having enough information on any subject unless it's his own work, in which case he's apt to be quite good and he can tell you. Mm -hmm. But we don't have very much information in common mm -hmm. with one another, which a common public educational system once gave us.
Would you return and, and, to the and, great uh, Brooks system then? Do you think we should go back to teaching the classics? Oh, reading, yes. writing, and arithmetic. I have a whole theory on education. I'd make history the spine of it. I'd start in the in the twelve years of indo state indoctrination, which is what the public school system is. Mm -hmm. I'd start in the first year with the Big Bang, Garden of Eden, give them everything just for the first graders. Mm -hmm. I would then teach the history of the human race, east and west, mm -hmm. north and south, for twelve years. Then I would bring in the sciences, the arts, as they crop up in the story of our race. So that by the time somebody graduated, he would know where China was. He would know who Confucius was. Mm -hmm. He would have a sense of where the human race has been. Now, the two things, which it just, I, I'm so amazed by an education, the two things that everybody's got to live with all his life, one is his body, the other is his money. Most adults don't know where their liver is until it is too late. Mm -hmm. Most don't know where their money is until Mr. Keating goes to jail. Right. The schools wouldn't dream of teaching you anything that you needed to know. Mm -hmm. So you'd have them teach things. I would have them teach the history of our race. And at the end of it, you would leave school and you'd be 17 years old and you'd know where, where we've been. Where we've then been. you might want to go someplace else, mm -hmm. but you would have an idea of the whole thing. So if you say what disturbs me the most is I don't have many people to talk to. Mm -hmm. Because I keep finding I, I, I just there's subjects I don't even bring up because mm -hmm. you'll get a blank. So conversation has become impossible in any real sense. No, you talk about not enough points of of, of common reference. You talk about reference. Madonna. I'm happy to do that for a while, but uh, mm -hmm. one Madonna does not an Athens make. Mm. How about you, Noam? What's what that you find most anguishing about this place? Uh, well, I should say just on this topic. We can, sure. Yeah. Sure. Uh, do you agree I, I, I sort of agree, but on the other hand, I, I do find conversation much easier than 30 years ago. There are very substantial problems. I know, I mean, these trips that you mentioned around the country, mm -hmm. talking to people. I mean, I can enter into the kinds of discussions and give the kinds of talks today mm -hmm. that I couldn't have dreamt of 30 years ago. Really? Yes, absolutely, because mm -hmm. the level of understanding and awareness... How could that uh, be, then? This is directly in contradiction with no, what it's not, it's not. Mm -hmm. because, see, things, mm -hmm. things are happening in many dimensions. Mm -hmm. I mean, the educational system is becoming narrower, impoverished, and collapsing. Mm -hmm. The media are, uh, first of all, actually the media are freer than they were 30 years ago, mm -hmm. but they're still pretty bad. Uh, the uh, intellectual classes are doctrinaire, rigid, mm -hmm. uh, uh, committed to a kind of to, kind of cultural totalitarianism, if you like. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, many other things happen in the world. People, you know, there's all it is a, society is a complicated place. Mm -hmm. uh, so things like, say, the civil rights movement, mm -hmm. or um, things like the solidarity groups, or things that have happened in the church, for example, or all sorts of things well, have created a big ferment, you know, among the people. When people talk population. to you, presumably they're talking from a base of uh, of knowledge and common yeah, points but of there are lots of ways to forget knowledge. Yeah. See, uh, you, one way. I mean, if you go down to say Arizona, you know, or. Iowa, where there's, uh, where you take a look at the, take say the, the Central American movements, which were big things mm -hmm. in the 80s, very important. Mm -hmm. I mean, the people who got their information about Central America did not get it from the media. Mm -hmm. They didn't get it from the educational system. Mm -hmm. They got it in other ways. Uh, they got it by, some of them by direct contact. So you're saying, yes, Gore's right, that the educational system, yeah, but the public education happening. system is There are other things happening. But there's other things well, happening. If, if you go out searching and you go out speaking, the Eleanor Roosevelt line, or what you do, quite a good deal of, and what I do, at least in a couple of elections, of course you find like-minded people. I had the whole oil thing explained to me by somebody in Eureka when I was running for Senate. 
mm-hmm. guy in the fuel business. He understood the entire Middle Eastern thing far better than the Wall Street Journal, which I'd been relying on. I don't understand the, something, the contradiction here, then. If the country's got no educational system, it's all falling apart, how is it that we've got so many people who well, are up on things? Right people are down to Because there are other ways to learn things. See, mm-hmm. what I, what I, I mean, when you ask what mm-hmm. bothers me most about the country, it's not the educational system. Mm-hmm. It's tortured bodies in El Salvador and homeless people in the streets of New York and things like that. People but just keeping pain, to, right? yeah, I mean, we're causing lots of people to suffer badly, and we don't have to. Suffer have real pain, hunger, torture, torture, mutilation, mm-hmm. uh, slaughter, you know, mm-hmm. we go on and on, and, and right. or, or, or just the... Rotting, rotting away in inner cities mm-hmm. on, in what amount the concentration camps. And you are There's blaming plenty. us for that. Somewhere. Well, you're, you're blaming us for well, I mean, I think we have the America. Well, I don't know who us is, but right. you know, I think we have the, we collectively right. have the resources and the capacity to mitigate a lot of this suffering. For one thing, we're responsible for a lot of it, so we can obviously mitigate it. Mm-hmm. But we could also change our own lives and institutions and interactions so as to improve it. We could do that. Well, you know, the actual Mm -hmm. defense budget is two-thirds of the revenues of the federal government. Mm -hmm. They always say, well, it's only a third because they they include Social Security payments. Well, they are are a part. And so are the disbursements. So they always say, oh, it's just one-third for the Pentagon. And these people programs, and to see Mm -hmm. those heads shake sadly over the welfare mothers living at the Ambassador East Hotel drinking champagne. They just shake their heads over there. Mm-hmm. Take out Social Security as revenue and take it out as disbursements, and you'll see that two-thirds mm-hmm. of the revenues of the country have gone for war ever since Harry Truman created the National Security State, which replaced the American mm-hmm. Republic. And I don't happen to like, I like the old republic. I'm a reactionary, which I think makes me absolutely politically uh, you okay like, in America. What does that really mean? I know you've called for a a new constitutional convention. Well, that would be the civilized response, but that, mm-hmm. that will not be allowed. That's, mm-hmm. that's what Thomas Jefferson expected. When you say you like the old republic, what do you mean? Well, the old republic, mm-hmm. Jefferson said there should be a constitutional convention at least once a generation, about mm-hmm. every 30 years. Mm-hmm. He said you cannot expect a man to wear a boy's jacket, and instead of all these mm-hmm. amendments and so on, that you would eventually try and systematize the thing mm-hmm. and change it just. Mm-hmm. We haven't done that, and the result is that mm-hmm. in 1949, mm-hmm. National Security Council Act Number 68 was the one that set up a national security state. Mm-hmm. They united the War Department, the Navy Department, the Defense Department. OSS becomes CIA. When you say and, th- when you say they, no, Gore, I'd like to know who you mean by they. Uh, we begin it's, with Harry Truman. We begin with a dollar a year businessman who had come to Washington, Engine Charlie mm-hmm. Wilson and Electric Charlie Wilson, mm-hmm. and other like-minded people of both political parties. Vandenberg was working for the, on the Republican side, and Harry Truman and Dean Acheson were working on the Democratic side. So you see an oligarchic conspiracy, really. Well, a conspiracy uh, the, the, of the rich to take over the country and to set up this national security state, as you call it. Conspiracy is too strong a word. It was a consensus, I would say, and it was, in many ways, it was virtuous. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to fall back into the Depression, which we had not got out of when mm-hmm. the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. They thought war was good for business. Mm-hmm. They, we should stay forever on a wartime footing, which is part of this National Security Council uh, directive, mm-hmm. 
-hmm. There's, I think, seven points to it. One of it is interesting, that we will never deal with the Soviet Union mm. diplomatically. We will mm -hmm. never make any peace or any acknowledgement that they must be permanently outside mm -hmm. and permanently the enemy. Well, we lost representative government during this. We've lost much of the Bill of the Rights that has been eroded. Mm -hmm. And uh, when people wonder why there are people sleeping out on Melrose Avenue and uh, mm -hmm. in Los Angeles and the schools and the bridges are falling down, well, this is what happened. All the money was taken to sustain the national security state. And you're saying it wasn't necessarily such a bad thing. No, they thought, it, they, they thought they were doing the right. They really believed that communism was an evil. So they, they didn't care about Russia. They, didn't know, they, they knew that Russia, this is where they were wicked, they knew Russia was no threat to the United mm -hmm. States. We had the atom bomb, they didn't. But they they lost 20 million people. They had to use horses mm -hmm. to take their, their heavy weapons out of Central Europe. But they had the example of Stalinist Russia right before them. This is something to be afraid of. You wouldn't want this kind of uh, totalitarian well, I, system in the United States. Uh, there was no chance ever. H.L. Mencken is very funny on it. He said, he wrote this back in the 30s. Mencken mm -hmm. said, the Russians and the Americans are very much alike. As peoples, they are slightly less intelligent than the rest of the world. They are deeply religious and rather easily fooled. Mm -hmm. He said the reason that communism never took, took hold in the United States, despite poverty and so forth and so on, he said because the Americans instinctively knew what was going on in Russia to folks just like themselves and rejected it. Mm -hmm. he said, and he said, that he used, I think he used the, the verb vaccinated, that we had been vaccinated by the likes of Theodore Roosevelt and William Jennings Bryan. Mm -hmm. that we weren't going to fall for that. So I think that no, no one ever worried about the United States becoming a communist power. Nobody really worried about the Soviet Union as a military threat until mm -hmm. by, by the 60s. Yes, of course it was, but uh, only with provocation. You know, I was trying to, th in reading both of your books this past week again, reading through the various things you've written, I've tried to isolate some differences between you. Uh, and one of them seems to be that Gore, being an historian, essentially, a novelist of biographer of America, has a deep interest in the origins of the American constitutional state and essentially a, a certain kind of faith in the political system. Whereas, Noam, you seem to me to be essentially an anarchist who has very little belief that the system as it's been constituted, even with our founding fathers, has even the slightest prayer of ever working. I, I was going to ask you the question, what if we played a game here for a minute, and Gore, you were president, and Noam was secretary of state. I know that's most Americans' worst nightmare. But if that nightmare... Mine, were, mine too. If that, that, actually, I rather like it. The first thing I would do is I, resign. Uh, but, no, I, I, actually, as president, I'd put you in the defense department. Now, I, I see you as my secretary of defense. Anyway. The, if you were president, you were secretary of state, if that were a, a, a dream possibility, could you change this country? Could you make it more democratic? Could you make it a peace-loving nation that would be kind to its neighbors? No, because by the time I got elected president or he got elected president, we would have been bought so many times by so many people that we would have to represent the interests that had, had, had bought us the position. But we would also be very different sorts of people from what we are. You're a very rich man. You, don't, you can't be bought by anybody. Well, there are a lot richer people than me in politics, and uh, they follow the standard line. Mm -hmm. Not only that, but if, I mean, it's, first of all, if, you know, on the absurd assumption absurd that somebody like us would be appointed, elected, that would be because there had already been mass popular movements developing which were 
active and participant and so mm -hmm. on, and that would have been re revitalizing American democracy. It wouldn't be the people on top of no, it. Doing it. it. Don't we have that They'd possibility? Of doing. Well, sure, that can happen in this country. This is a grassroots country. You can do it in any no, country. It's not you can do it in any country, but that's not it. But uh, the picture you present is upside down. Yeah. You don't do it by first electing somebody who's going to revitalize democracy. Mm -hmm. uh, if you've gotten to the point where uh, a person representing the public interest could be elected, you mm -hmm. have already gone a long way toward revitalizing democracy. And you only get democracy. that out of great disaster. I mean, there is no change in mm -hmm. any country unless there's a catastrophe, which mm -hmm. in our case, I suspect, will be economic. It'll be mm -hmm. hideous inflation, more unemployment. Mm -hmm. Then you'll see the possibilities of a Huey Long, a figure I quite admire. Mm -hmm. Or, if you're a pessimist, you'll see a committee from the Pentagon, a committee on public safety, which will take over. Mm -hmm. uh, so, as Norm is right, you're putting it backwards. You just don't elect somebody who turns out to be a really nice guy and yeah. is going to straighten it out. You can't. These, these, so you think the it's word radical means roots. You, know, yeah. you have to go to the roots of it, and the president is just... Uh, a flower, as in, it were. In other words, according to both of you, it's hopeless. The way the, the no, system is no. presently constituted, we are inevitably going to drift into further financial disarray. No, no the totalitarianism. The fact that there are lots of hopeful things around, I just don't. I think you're looking for them in the wrong place. Mm -hmm. You're not going to find hopeful things at the level of the president and secretary of state. Mm -hmm. You want to find hopeful things? Take a look at the uh, church-based solidarity organizations in Kansas. Mm -hmm. That's hopeful things. Uh, there's a lot of grassroots uh, public... So, so why did the National Security Policy Review that I quoted say that the only kind of intervention now possible is against is rapid, decisive victory without losing public support? Because That's because the country's changed. Do you think it's the country has the, changed? Oh, absolutely. Since yes. the Vietnam War? Not, yeah, very great, greatly. Really? Uh, look, we're, the classic intervention is not even considered an option any longer. You don't have Marine... Nobody's thinking of Marines slogging around Nicaragua chasing Sandino mm -hmm. or U.S. troops marauding in South Vietnam for years while B-52s well, smash up the Mekong Delta. We were pretty happy about half a million troops going That's to for, the Middle East. Yeah, but making sure that they don't fight, remember. The, but they fought. They did not. They didn't. They didn't. What did they do? Look, I mean... They, 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 they looked like a battle on television. Well, look, what were those tanks doing? What were all what those bombers? Tanks, we killed 200,000 people. Hold on a second. U.S. casualties were about the level of Grenada, combat casualties. Mm -hmm. What happened was there was a mass slaughter of a third world peasant army sitting in holes. Mm -hmm. And after that was done, they allowed troops to walk in and pick up the pieces, making sure that and what, what fighting there was was done. You know, they, they made very sure that the people we were killing were killed from a safe distance. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not a war. Uh, and they know they can't fight a war, and they don't even pretend otherwise. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason is that you're uh, saying it's okay to kill people from a distance. I'm not saying it's okay. I'm saying that the options for intervention have been narrowed. Mm -hmm. The options for intervention have been narrowed. The classic forms, are, everyone agrees, are over. Mm -hmm. Nobody even thinks about them. Mm -hmm. uh, the kinds of intervention you can now carry out are proxy wars, mm -hmm. where you use mercenaries like the Contras, right. or, 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 or quick surgical quick operations. surgical operations over a much weaker enemy, mm -hmm. where you first make sure that you... You know, you, you beat them to a pulp, mm -hmm. and then you maybe let some soldiers walk and in. And you must have total, That's total, not a war. total control mm -hmm. over the media, because yeah. what's going on must not be reported. I watched the war on CNN. Well, the very fact that there was 50,000 sorties, the French word seemed to attract them, so, mm -hmm. meant that we weren't 
hitting anything. Mm -hmm. Those two bridges across the Tigris River are still there. Mm -hmm. Now, if I were declaring war on and Baghdad as my target, I would knock those bridges out. Mm -hmm. We did not have accurate bombing at 37,000 feet. You can't hit anything. Mm -hmm. It was what we called in the Second War carpet bombing, and mm -hmm. it was to destroy the civilian population mm -hmm. and to make them give up, to, to devastate them. Mm -hmm. This cannot be told to the American people. So on the one hand, we now have 45,000 sorties. Well, mm -hmm. if you knock out everything, not 45,000 military targets of mm -hmm. any importance. It meant we were missing everything. But, you know, we did have the consent of the American people. Something like 80 to 90 percent of the American people supported this foray. In the you know West. what pollsters have a saying? You can get any answer to a poll you want on the way you phrase the question. If uh, Saddam Hussein continues, he lives in a country called Iraq, your gasoline will cost $100 a gallon. Should we get rid of him? Yes. So you get 90% against him. I mean, mm -hmm. the pollsters have a saying, garbage in, garbage out. Mm -hmm. See, actually, some of the polls are very revealing, but I don't think they show what you're concluding. Yeah. So, for example, well, I think they show something about an earlier point mm -hmm. that you raised, about the role of the media or really the whole intellectual culture. There, there were polls uh, right before the bombing. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was January 9th or so, the Washington Post published a national poll, which had the following results in it. It said, uh, uh, it said if Iraqi withdrawal from Kuwait could be assured on condition that there would be an international conference on the Arab-Israel problem, mm -hmm. would you then agree? Now, that question was framed so as to minimize the possibility of a, it did you, your trick, they framed, they actually put the question so as to minimize the probability of a positive response. It started off by saying, George Bush is against this, you know, mm -hmm. but then people, that automatically cuts it down because you don't mm -hmm. want to be against the president. Then it said, you know, would you agree to this? Well, two-thirds mm -hmm. of the population said yes. All right, now let's imagine the following situation. Mm -hmm. Remember that every person, who's, virtually every person who said yes must mm -hmm. have thought, I must be the only person who believes this. Right. Because they hadn't seen anyone advocate it. Mm -hmm. I mean, you mm -hmm. know, nobody came out and said, yeah, that's a good idea. Mm -hmm. uh, so you had people saying, I'm the only one who believes this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Right. Secondly, virtually no one, maybe no one who said yes, knew that just a week before that, uh, U.S. officials had released an Iraqi proposal to withdraw totally from Kuwait in exactly those terms right. and had regarded it as a serious uh, proposal indicating Iraqi intention to withdraw, mm -hmm. and the U.S. had flatly rejected it. Mm -hmm. Now, virtually nobody knew these things. Suppose mm -hmm. that you had an information system which presented the world as it is. Yes. Okay, now then you would have people saying, well, yeah, there's an offer like that on the table. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been debated and discussed, and the merits have been discussed. Yes. Uh, now, how many people would have come out in favor of it? Well, you know, probably 98 percent. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there wouldn't have been a war. Now, when you ask about public opinion, you have to can't just say, well, what did what they say in the, the public? You've got to look at the these poll? issues. I mean, mm -hmm. the, is the, the, the matter was set up by months of propaganda and suppression and distortion and so on, mm -hmm. which meant that uh, the existence of a diplomatic settlement had been largely suppressed. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, the, there had been virtually no discussion of the mm -hmm. obviously relevant issues, like yes. the possibility of regional security arrangements and so on. So it's all propaganda, essentially. Well, it's propaganda, if you like, yeah. But, you know, the, 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 all of the, the kinds of things we're saying will sound to a lot of people like Russia in the 1950s. 
a, a situation where essentially thought control is happening. That the government is actively it's not the government. And, and consciously it's not the trying to control people's minds. Sure, like the government, of course, will try to control. But the point is, in this, this isn't Russia. Yes. The government can't tell CBS or the New York Times or the New York Review of Books, you know, you keep these things quiet. Uh, and there is a range of opinion on these networks. Is there? On no, these there networks. no, there isn't. I mean, there's, the not range much. of opinion is so narrow, mm -hmm. it's virtually undetectable. I was it, talking on the phone last week to a good friend of mine. I said I was doing an interview with Gore Vidal, Noam Chomsky, and he said to me, those guys complain all the time that they're suppressed, that they, their voices are never heard. You never turn on the Johnny Carson show that you don't see Gore Vidal. You never open up a paper that there isn't an article by Noam Chomsky. Well, first of all, I and don't Noam Chomsky speaks across the country three, yeah, four nights a week. True. His voice is ubiquitous. Gore look, Vidal is a household look, word, and yet you're saying you're suppressed. I'm not, look, I'm not complaining about him. You, you asked me for a description of what's happening. That's right. not a complaint. A description is not a complaint. I'm describing the mm -hmm. fact. The facts are that in the mm -hmm. mainstream media in the United States, there's a very narrow spectrum of opinion that's permitted. Mm -hmm. I mean, you'll get what amounts to statistical error or sort of noise in the system, you know. Mm -hmm. So you get around like 2 3% deviation So you won't get the far the right or the far left. Well, I mean, you do get the mar It's not the far left. I mean, like he said he's a reactionary. I'd say I'm a conservative. I mean, I don't <laughs> think this has anything to do with left or right, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, Perhaps uh, those terms in American well, well, life don't mean much. Yeah, I wouldn't even use them. But the yes. issues that we're, whatever we might think about social and political issues, here we're talking about something which has nothing to do with left and right. Mm -hmm. We're talking about whether the media should present to the public the fact that there have been a series of diplomatic options open mm -hmm. from August, which State Department experts regarded as serious and mm -hmm. negotiable. That, what does that have to do with right and left? So I the, mean, that's a question of whether the... Or, so or, a, you're saying then that the media are suppressing just the vital media. information. It's not just the media, it's also the intellectual community. So you turn to the New York Review of Books, for example. Mm -hmm. They had a series of articles, in fact, calling for sanctions instead of war. But if you look at them, uh, they, 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 they look at the way they're framed. The way they're framed is, well, uh, we, we now have these wonderful new prospects for peace. Mm -hmm. uh, the United Nations can finally function in its peacekeeping role mm -hmm. with the Russian veto no longer blocking it and you know, the third world no longer disrupting. And shouldn't we move forward to take this opportunity to create a, mm -hmm. a wonderful world order based on peace and justice? Mm -hmm. Well, that's just gross. That's a gross distortion of reality. I mean, and the reason the United who, who wrote that piece? That then? happened to be George Ball. George but, Ball, uh, but he's but a distinguished. I, look, I mean, everybody is distinguished. distinguished. <laughs> but the point is that that was the first. Par I mean, yeah. I didn't quote it exactly, but that's right. roughly the content of the first paragraph mm -hmm. of what was, in fact, a rather good article calling for diplomacy mm -hmm. rather than war. I but, think at some point we should, we should always make the point that you talked about this isn't Russia. This is the, the government doesn't give orders to the press and so on. No, it doesn't. Mm -hmm. What we have is a ruling class which we're never supposed to say exists, but it does. It's a very powerful one. It's partly money. It's partly bright kids who are trained in places like Harvard to run the place. Mm -hmm. You don't have to call up the editor of the New York Times or the president of the United States, the head of CBS, and give them the policy on the Middle East. Mm -hmm. They have these jobs because they think alike. Mm -hmm. They've been gone to the same conditioned schools. They have the same worldview. Mm -hmm. And where odd types like Chomsky and I come along, and I think, I don't know what motivates him, but I'm much motivated by, I wouldn't even say anything so lofty as a sense of justice as I am by incongruity. 
Illogic drives me crazy. Mm -hmm. I can remember in school, the First Amendment was taught, freedom of speech, and then you tried a four-letter word, you couldn't say it in class. I said, all right, now this isn't logical. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was a real pain, as you could see. <laughs> right. Anyway, they, they, are, they are shaped. And the United States is very distant from mm -hmm. the rest of the world. We're outside civilization. We have our own thing. Mm -hmm. But we're in a bubble. Why would Chomsky be wandering around the country uh, talking at these little universities on big ones if he didn't feel that it was not only worth doing, but that mm -hmm. by explaining the prospect, you can illuminate the prospect and you can help people to make change? Mm -hmm. Is that what you're trying to do? I've never through not your tried to do it. And through your political activity? Of course. Trying to change things? Of course. I now call myself a reactionary because it's the only way you can present yourself to, to the American people. I want to go back to the old republic. Every head starts to nod. I said I wanted to go forward to something. Every head starts to shake. So. <laughs> what, what do you want to change to? I'd like to ask both of you this question. Let's say that we have to change. The situation you've pictured of America is very dismal. You've got a very docile, apathetic population who is, fe who is fearful. You've got a, a small group of very rich people who are manipulating the government. You've got a government with a kind of demonic imperial, it sounds like a 19th century imperial craze for power, for property, for profit. It's a very dismal picture. You've got a press that's submissive. What would you, what, what, how, what First of all, it doesn't look as dismal. To, I don't think I'm seeing it as dismally as you're presenting the way I'm seeing it. No, uh, it seems. Well, then you're not drawing your own conclusions. No, that's not I don't true. think you are. That's not true. I think you're, your picking, you're, you're picking out of what I said some strains, but there's another strain, and I've said it here too. There's a very cynical strain in your writing. Yeah, but there's also a very optimistic strain. Cynical, strain by the way, is, cynical is the American word for realistic. Yeah, I, we I mean, should I, tell I, the audience I, that. I, I agree. Mm -hmm. That's what I. That's the way I interpret it. Yeah. Yes, I think I try to be realistic. Of course, everyone mm -hmm. does. Uh, but I think part of realism is to recognize that there's been substantial improvements over the past 30 years. The country is a lot more civilized than it was 30 years ago. Civilized uh, in what sense? We're still doing the same evil no, we're deeds. Not, but I keep repeating myself, but we are not. The options of things like, say, the Vietnam War mm -hmm. are virtually inconceivable today. Even mm -hmm. things like classical intervention are virtually inconceivable today. Mm -hmm. uh, there, and the reason is because of changes in the popular mood. And you both have said, seen, I think, many glimmers of light in the panorama of the world scene. Um, Gore, be, be your most hopeful. Well, the most hopeful thing is that there are two great forces in the world at any given moment. They're very visible now. One is centrifugal and one is centripetal. Mm -hmm. The Soviet Union is going through a centrifugal phase. It's just it's, everything's rushing away from the center. Mm -hmm. Western Europe is centripetal, is coming together in the common market. I think that finally it's getting through to peoples all over the world that the nation state is an unnatural sort of arrangement. Nobody likes it, the sort of Bismarck, Lincoln state. I see that as just instinctively as happening all around the world. We will perhaps break up into cantonal systems and we have a larger uh, organization for a better environment and a better economy, it's like the common market. So from that point of view, I think something is happening mm -hmm. around the world. And if we don't blow ourselves up, I think uh, this centrifugal force is going to be extremely good for it, mm -hmm. balanced with the centripetal ones. Mm -hmm. Now, if it gets out of balance, we're all in trouble. History is complicated enough and people are complicated enough, so there's a lot of ways of reading the evidence. 
And a hopeful way of reading the evidence is that uh, over the centuries, and in fact over recent years, uh, there is a constant struggle in which people try to confront and overcome authority and domination and submissiveness and so on. They, you, you struggle against it in a lot of ways. I mean, one way to struggle against it is neurosis mm -hmm. or pathology because you don't recognize it and you just internalize it. That's a kind of a non-constructive way to struggle against it. Uh, more constructive ways are to recognize it, understand it, find ways of working with others to change it. And there are plenty of indications of that. I mean, we live in a different world than we did 400 years ago, mm -hmm. or 200 years ago, or 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and many, of, and the, insofar as there have been improvements, and there are some, and mm -hmm. some significant ones, they're because of the manifestations of these tendencies of, uh, I hope, human nature. Well, that's hopeful. I want to personally thank you both for coming here, talking with us. It's been a good conversation. Thank you. Thank you.